Hey, good morning, everyone. I'm so glad that you are here. My name is Ben, and you are in the fifth week of our message series called Rooted. Now, Matthew uh, told you this was the last week. Actually, it's not. There's one more week. We're actually going to talk about the charismatic movement next Sunday. Uh, Pastor Andy will be leading us in that. You don't want to miss that. Uh, You may not know this, but the fastest growing segment of Christianity in the world by far, by tenfold, is the charismatic movement. And the truth of the matter is, is in South America and in Asia, uh, that branch of Christianity is exploding, just exploding. And so you're going to want to hear what it is we can learn from this movement that's the relative young newcomer to the stage, all right? But today, we're going to talk a little bit about the Baptists. Now, if you're a guest with us today, here's what we've been doing. We've been looking at various streams of the Christian faith and asking a basic question. Here we are today in 2015. What can we learn from them? What can we learn from these ancient streams of the Christian faith? Several hundred years old, several thousand years old, at least 2,000 years old for one of them. And what can we today in this modern time learn from them? Or are they just things in our past, kind of dusty, cobweb-ridden experiences from our past? Or do they have viable, valid, and timely things to show us and teach us? Because here's the basic premise we began and started with and continued all the way through this message series, that Jesus said he would build his church, that the church belongs to Jesus. So in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus said, I'll build my church, and even death itself will not stop the progress of this church. When Jesus said the phrase literally, the gates of hell will not impede the church, that reference, the gates of hell, was the idea of people dying. And so people around him, people around Jesus hearing him talk, he was saying to his disciples, to Peter and the others, even if you die, this movement's going to go on. And there's some really good news in that because there is a lot of people that have gone on before us that are our spiritual aunts and uncles, great grandmas and grandpas, so to speak, that have gone on before us and the church keeps moving on. Here's another thing that means for us, that when we are all food for worms, pushing up daisies, that you know that day's coming, right? The death rate still hovers at about 100%, right? You know how that works, right? Well, when we're doing that, the church of Jesus Christ is going to continue, It is. In fact, it's one of the few things that's happening here on this earth that's going to continue for forever. Because when this earth is over, those that are with Christ, his church, his bride, are going to be with him for eternity. And so an investment of your time and energy into a church, into the church of Jesus Christ, is a powerful long-term investment. In this church, we take this very seriously. And that's why right now, while you're in this room, there are a group of people investing in the next generation because we want them to know that the church belongs to Jesus and they can belong to Jesus and have a place of significance and value in his church. The other thing that we're doing, though, is we're doing this because it'd be real easy to focus on the differences. As we do this Rooted series, we're asking a basic question. What, What can we learn? What can we learn? How do we, instead of just being a critic, how do we become a student? Now, there are a lot of differences we can discuss. And then so that tomorrow night at 7 o'clock right here in this room, uh, we're doing a 90-minute session where we're going to go a little bit deeper. And I'll be highlighting a couple of those differences and taking some questions and answers. We're going to look at uh, 7 to 10, depending. I haven't landed yet. I don't know how much time I'm going to give to each one. But 7 to 10 significant turning points in people in the life of the church of of the last couple thousand years and drawing out some of those differences a little bit more than we can do here. But for this Sunday morning experience, we're asking, how do we learn from these people? How do we learn? I mean, have you ever been around the people who seem to always be a critic? There's a place for being a critic. There's a place for that. But 
we and you will get a whole lot more energy asking, what can I learn from this versus just how can I identify what's wrong with it? Even when we identify things that are wrong or where we disagree, we can be students. And we can learn a lot today from the group of people we're going to be talking about, the Baptists. Now, I grew up in the South. What this means is everybody around me was Baptist. Everybody. I mean, you, you literally, almost every street corner in the little downtown of the little town where I grew up in the South. I'm born in Chicago, but 11, we moved to Southeast Tennessee. That was a culture shock. Those people talked very slow. Very, very slow. Um, but anyway, uh, there was a Baptist church on almost every block. That's not an exaggeration. And so I wasn't Baptist. I was, I grew up part of that charismatic movement we're going to talk about next week a little bit. And so when we thought about who it is we wanted to bring to Jesus, like who it was that needed to have a relationship with Jesus, we thought about the Baptists. Because you were either Baptist or charismatic in my town. I mean, there was, like, there was one Catholic church with like 40 people in it. And I just feel so bad for those people because everybody in town trying to win them to Jesus all the time. I mean, it was very different than up here. Even in our church, we have a very diverse background. About 60% of the people who call Four Corners Home have a Catholic background. Sometimes they haven't been very active in that, but that's what they identified with growing up. And uh, so so that, that's very different than the culture I grew up with. But you can't go anywhere in the world today in America, even in Cincinnati, even though we're not in the South, without being impacted by the group of people identified as Baptists. Now, what you need to know about the Baptist background is this. When we've looked at these other traditions, we've been able to find a single person and rally around what it was that God was doing in their life. With the Baptists, it's a little different. The Baptists begin in the Anglican church movement. Now, the Anglican church movement was that non-Catholic movement within the nation of England started by Henry VIII. It's been said, and it's an oversimplification, that he wanted a divorce from his wife, and the Pope wouldn't grant it, so he split the church. That's one of the reasons. But there was a lot of other stuff going on. And while the rest of Europe was uh, going through a reformation of sorts as well, England was going through its own thing. And within the Anglican movement, there were a group of people that really wanted to get to the heart of what God was wanting to do in the world. And they looked at the Anglican church and said, it's pretty good, but it can be better. And you know about these people. In fact, in just a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about something that they're pretty famous for, Thanksgiving. And so the Puritans and the pilgrims, the Puritan pilgrims who made their way from England to America, they were a part of a, a group within the Anglican church saying, we can kick it up a notch. God wants to do more than what we're experiencing in the typical church. And so this Puritan movement was a revival movement, largely within the Anglican church. But over time, they began to split off. And so you had movements within the Anglican church and movements outside of the Anglican church saying, we think that the local church can do more in the life of the believer. We think that the local church can do more in the community. We feel like the church has become an institution for itself, and it's time to bring it back into the streets. So both within and without, and one of the groups outside of the Anglican church that tried to do it within, got frustrated, decided they do their own thing, ultimately becomes the Baptist church. And when it first started, it was very difficult. So some of the first groups of people who we call Baptists decide to move from England and they go to Amsterdam where they allow a lot of stuff. Even today, you can go to Amsterdam and there's a lot of legal stuff over there that isn't legal here. All right. And so they go to Amsterdam and they decide to create a little community of faith. 
right there. And here's what they were known for and why they got called Baptist. Their primary belief was this, that if you commit to a relationship with Jesus, after you do that, after you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you should be baptized as an adult. And this was very different than everybody else around them. Everybody else around them said, no, baptism is for babies. We baptize babies early so they can go to heaven. And these Puritans began to read the Bible. These separatists began to read the Bible. And they said, as we understand the Bible, here's the way it seems to work in the Bible. You believe, then are baptized. And it's really difficult for babies to believe. So there's a big debate about that. And because they were different, they were persecuted. So they stepped out. And a gentleman by the name of John Smith becomes the first pastor of the first Baptist church in the world. And that church grows believe it or not, pretty dramatically and pretty quickly. It grows so big that a group from Amsterdam decided to go back to London. And now they're big enough, they have a little bit of money, and they start the First Baptist Church there. So it begins less around a person and that person's experience and more around a basic belief that an adult who has an understanding of God puts their trust in Jesus. After they do that, they get baptized. And this baptizing babies thing, they didn't want anything to do with that. And we're going to talk about that a little bit uh, in just a second. But first, I want to walk you through a handful of kind of Baptist people, all right? People that you may or may not have known were Baptist. Here's our first guy, picture coming up of John Bunyan. John Bunyan was writer living in England right around the time that the Baptist movement is growing. I mean, and that group that comes back from Amsterdam to London, he's connected to them. And he writes a very, very famous book called Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress. This is the best-selling book in the history of the world outside the Bible. This is the number two best-selling book in the history of the world until the last 100 years, all right? The last 100 years, it was, it was kicked over by something else. Um, another Christian book called The Purpose Driven Life actually sold more copies than this book written by this guy, Pilgrim's Progress. And Bunyan was a Baptist and he wrote a book about what it was to grow in a relationship with Jesus and all the things and all the things people might encounter. If you haven't read this book, you might wanna pick it up. It was kind of the standard uh, for years and years on what it meant to grow as a believer. And it's written as a story, as an allegory. But John Bunyan was a man of profound faith, and he thought that every single person within the life of the church should have an active and growing relationship. So he took principles from the Bible, wrote about them in story form, and began to talk about them. The next guy I want to introduce to you is one of my personal favorites. He was a pastor in London. His name is Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was uh, perhaps the greatest orator of his time, perhaps maybe ever. Some people have, have speculated who's the greatest preacher in terms of just their stage presence and their ability to communicate to a crowd ever. And a lot of folks think it's Charles Spurgeon. I enjoy reading him. Most pastors do. He was a pastor's pastor, so to speak. And he invested in a lot of young people and said, God has called you to ministry. And I like this, uh, this quote that he gives. He says, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter because besides being a great preacher, He was an incredible evangelist. That means he had a heart for people that weren't in the church. So he pastored at a time before sound systems and uh, and electricity, and he pastored a church that at sometimes 10,000 people would be under roof in one moment. And they would hear him preach about God's word in very tangible and forceful ways. And then hundreds and hundreds of people at the end of his messages would respond. He would have them sit in their seats, 
and they would make decision. And then they, uh, a decision to turn their lives over for Jesus. And then he would call for baptisms and people would come forward. And it seems like when some, one person would come forward to be baptized, there were five people waiting in the shadows. And Charles Spurgeon literally turned London, England upside down. And he had direct contact with a lot of movement that happened in America as well. We'll talk about that in a second. I want to introduce you to the next guy, uh, next guy because he's a hometown favorite. A gentleman by the name of Oswald Chambers. Oswald Chambers wrote a book, My Utmost for His Highest. That is, the best I can give God for His highest good. It's from a verse in the Old Testament. This is a very popular book. And we have a modern, relatively modern picture of him because he's relative modern days. You know, less than 110 years ago or so he was born. He wrote this great book, and he, he lived in Cincinnati for a while. And he went to uh, uh, a school that the buildings are still around. The school is called God's Bible College. And uh, Oswald Chambers was involved there. But he, he really wanted to take the truth of God's word and make it very plain to the average person who was wanting to grow. So there's a theme here. There's a theme in all these Baptists. In fact, in everybody we've talked about, there was a love for God's word and their desire to make it very approachable to every person. In other words, they were in environments where it was real easy to talk about the Bible or church or theology in ways that the average person would come and hear and nod and leave and go, I don't even know what I really heard. I don't even really know what that's about. So these major movers and shakers in our traditions they were very good at taking the truth from God's word and making it very plain at a level that everybody could grab it. And Oswald Chambers was very, very good at that. But perhaps the best known Baptist of all time, a man who has preached to more people than the Apostle Paul, is a gentleman by the name of Billy Graham. And Billy Graham grew up a Presbyterian and he had a lot of religion and he had a very good experience, but it was in a Baptist church that Billy Graham says for the first time in his life that his relationship with God became alive to him and it lit a fire in him. I like his quote here. He says that Christianity is not a spectator sport. It's something in which we become totally involved. And this man dedicates his entire life to making sure that the Bible, in fact, his favorite quote would be as he would hold his Bible, he would say, and my Bible says, if you've ever heard Billy Graham speak, and my Bible says, or the Bible tells us, and he would talk about the word of God in ways that people could understand, and he filled stadiums around the country. And if you, How many of you, just by quick show of hands, have ever been to a Billy Graham crusade? You ever seen that? Now, uh, now, maybe you haven't, but I can assure you that most of the people that are a part of your spiritual heritage have had a dram- dramatic and important and personal contact with Billy Graham. In fact, when I've been in a room with other pastors and you say, does somebody have a Billy Graham story? Everybody's like, I got a Billy Graham story. I've got a Billy Graham story. God used this guy dramatically and he's still alive. I think he's pushing 97 years old. He's been out of ministry. But I wanna give you a little snapshot of what a typical Billy Graham Baptist crusade would look like. Now he was smart. He didn't put Baptist on the name of his stuff. He had a much bigger yard than just his particular branch of Christianity. But here's how it would begin. He would come to the stage after somebody has shared their story of God's work in their life. And there was some compelling music, well done music, often by somebody who had a certain notoriety. Um, one of his favorite guys to travel with, a gentleman by name of Johnny Cash. And that just increases Billy Graham's cool factor tenfold. Um, I'm a huge Johnny Cash fan. Ring of Fire. I want to do that song here and then do an altar call. Like Ring of Fire, talk about hell, do an altar call. Just kind of see how that works, you know. 
So, so, so Billy Graham would get up and he would start and he would say something to this effect. Um, uh, you know, I'm really glad you're here. And I'm gonna share with you some stuff from God's word. And then he would start and you would hear this all the way through his talk. And at the end of our time together, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to respond. Right on the front end, he would say, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to respond. From the balconies, and there would be tens of thousands of people, I'm gonna give you a chance to respond. And then he would talk a little bit and he'd say, now at the end of our time, I'm gonna give you a chance to respond to what you're hearing. I'm gonna give you a chance to choose whether or not you want to move forward in a relationship with Jesus. And you do that by admitting that you're a sinner. He'd quote a few Bible verses about that. You do that by accepting the grace of God, but don't forget in a few minutes, I'm gonna give you a chance to respond. And so he would preach for 25, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. And then he would stop and say, all right, right now, no matter where you're coming from, you can respond to what you've heard, this simple teaching from the word of God. And then he would give what the Baptist would call an altar call. So in their tradition, at the end of the preaching, people would come forward. So he would say, from the balconies, if you want to respond, start making your way down to this field. And, and, and we'll wait on you. The buses will wait on you because people were bussed in from all over the city. We will wait on you. All over the world, he did this for over 50 years. He did this. And whenever they would do that, they would sing the same song, the same song. And that may seem old and stale and the form never really changed, but the people who were doing it were full of passion that God's word would change people's lives. And if people would respond to Jesus, it would change their lives. And that fire kept them going, even though their method never really changed. And that song that they sung, Just As I Am, kind of captured the heart and soul of the message. And so if you look up here, on the screen, I want to show you those words. Just as I am, the song says, without a plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And Billy Graham had just talked about the blood of Jesus covering the sins of people, that God did that because he loved us. And then he would, they would, the choir would often sing out as people were making their ways from all over the stadium. And that you bid me come to thee, O Lamb of God. That's one of the names for Jesus. I'm coming. And man, they would come by the thousands. And since it was taking a long time, they would sing the second verse. Just as I am and waiting not, I'm gonna do it right now, to rid my soul of one dark blot to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot. And then the choir would sing out, O Lamb of God, I come. And then they would sing a third verse all with the same idea, just saying it different ways. Just as I am, though tossed about, not like this is my favorite part, with many a conflict, many a doubt. So Graham would say, maybe you don't understand it all, but do you understand enough to begin a relationship with Jesus? Fightings and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come. And I can talk you through that. I'd love to have Billy on the stage. I can't do that, but I can show you a video from about 25 years ago of this exact moment. So uh, here he is talking to the crowd, making his appeal that they will wait on them to go ahead and make their way down and respond to the message and respond to Jesus. Take a look. It won't take long, but even if it does take long, come anyway. From all over, whatever language you speak or whoever you are, You may be a member of the choir and you've been here several nights and God has been speaking with you. And many of you are in the church, but God has been speaking to you. 
and you know that you need to come and make this commitment to Christ. There are excuses, oh yes. The devil is giving you some new ones right now. You get up and come. We're going to wait. As hundreds are already on the way, you join them. So taking the simple message of the gospel, making it understandable in terms that people can hear, embrace, respond to. Billy Graham covered the world with a simple message that God loves you and has a plan for your life and literally changed the temperature of the spiritual climate in country after country after country. Now, what he was doing was just being a very good Baptist. But his story doesn't start there. In fact, I want to take you on a little timeline of history and walk you through how Billy Graham came to be what I believe has been the world's greatest evangelist. That is, the greatest, per, the, the person used the most by God to make the Christian simple message of the gospel clear for millions. It began in a Sunday school class a few hundred years ago in the city of Chicago with a gentleman by the name of Edward Kimball. In fact, I think I might have a picture of this guy. Edward Kimball was a teacher in a local church investing in the next generation. And he believed that the word of God was powerful. And if people understood it and had a chance to respond to it, it could change their lives. So he took some of his time, which he didn't have much of. It was a difficult time for him. He had a lot of work to do. But he carved out time each week to sit in a room and talk to a bunch of young men in their teens about what it was the Bible was trying to get them to understand about the world, about God, about themselves. And he had a hard go of it. And there was one particular kid in his class who seemed to never be interested. And he would go home despondent and frustrated and um, just, just almost angry at times that it seemed like all the other kids were leaning in, but this one kid wasn't leaning in. But he stayed at it, incredibly faithful, Week in, week out, carving out time, making sure that his basic belief that God's word could change a person if they could understand it, if they would embrace the truth of it, if they would embrace the God of the Bible through Jesus. And he stayed at it. And one day, this young man turned. And at the end of the class, they prayed and it lit this young man on fire. Maybe you've heard of this young man. His picture is up here on the screen. His name is D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was one of the greatest preachers that has ever walked the streets of America. And he grew up in Chicago at the time that was crime-ridden. You've seen and heard stories about this. The gangster movement was just beginning to get in full swing. There's crime on the streets. 
education is at a rock bottom. And D.L. Moody comes up and says, the gospel that changed me is the answer for what's going on in these streets. And he took his little experience in what, an environment that wasn't yet called Sunday school. And D.L. Moody gives birth to the modern Sunday school movement. Now, if you don't know what that is, it's a time before the average church meeting like this that primarily kids and adults would get together for an hour or so and study God's word. D.L. Moody said kids can't embrace God's word because they can't read. So he started a school on Sundays called Sunday School to teach them to read. And guess what their favorite book to read was? The Bible. So he taught them to read the Bible. And out of that, God began to elevate this guy. And he turned Chicago upside down. D.L. Moody had a dramatic impact on this country, and he showed people the difference that can happen when hundreds of people lean in with God, and he was shameless in asking people to support this work so that kids could learn to read the Bible and understand it. There it is again. And then respond to God's word. One of the people that D.L. Moody had a profound impact on, a gentleman who was already in a relationship with Jesus, but when he heard D.L. Moody speak, it catapulted him. It was a guy that maybe you haven't heard of. His name was J. Wilburn Chapman. I think I have his picture up here. This guy was a Presbyterian, but under D.L. Moody's preaching, the word of God comes alive to him. And he begins to travel all over the country preaching a simple message that the Bible is God's gift to us. It has truth in it. If you embrace the truth about God, the truth about yourself, the truth about Jesus, it will change your life. And he traveled all over the country telling these stories, setting up tents and talking about it. Wherever people, wherever he could gather people, churches didn't particularly like this guy. I think maybe they were a little concerned that people would enjoy his preaching maybe better than the preaching in the church. But people would come, man, would they come. And revivals, that is a spiritual renewal would break out in these communities. In one particular uh, event that Wilburn Chapman was preaching at, a gentleman was sitting in the seats who had just been offered to play professional baseball for Pittsburgh. He had a contract in hand. And he was an up-and-coming young buck with lots of energy and enthusiasm. And yet the girl he was interested in drug him to church to hear Wilburn Chapman speak. That's not a bad technique, ladies. Um, There's a lot of guys in church today because there were some pretty girls in church, all right? So get up, take a shower, make yourself look good. It's part of our evangelism strategy around here. It's a little sexist, I think, but it works. I, I don't know. So anyway, this young lady drug, drug Billy Sunday was his name to church to hear Chapman speak. And in that moment, Billy Sunday's heart, he had had some exposure, but his heart is gripped for the first time. He hears the word of God in a compelling way. And then God changes Billy Sunday's life. And he's known as the traveling baseball preacher. And he goes all over the country, all over Europe, preaching a message. And I love this. This guy was just a down-home speaker. Look, look at what he says. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a garage makes you an automobile. He said, it's not enough to be in church. You've got to have a relationship with Jesus. And you get that through embracing what the Bible has to say about you. And he was fiery. In fact, if you get on YouTube, you can see some of his preaching. There's some early film footage of this guy. 
Well, one of the guys that Billy Sunday impacted was a gentleman by the name of Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham. Here's Mordecai Ham. And he just decided, since Billy Sunday was doing a good job, after he heard Billy preach and he commits his life all the way, total life over to the work and call of God, he decides he's going to hit the road, traveling around, talking about Jesus. And he sets up revivals all over. And he goes to uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, and sets up a a revival there, a, a series of meetings. Mordecai Ham talks profoundly about God's word in impassioned ways, how that the smartest decision you'll ever make is to turn your life over to Jesus. And one of the young men sitting in one of those Mordecai Ham meetings was a Presbyterian by the name of Billy Graham. So all the way from Edward Kimball in a back room in a church somewhere teaching young men being frustrated through Dwight L. Moody, through Chapman, through Sunday, through Mordecai Ham we get Billy Graham, kind of an unbroken chain of people who had the basic belief that God's word understood and embraced by people would change things. So it brings me to how did the Baptists change the world? Well, I've been talking all around it. Let's talk about it in a couple of nuanced ways. They believe that your personal faith is to be lived out publicly. They believe that your personal faith should be lived out publicly. There was no such thing as a private Christian. That if God's word consumed a person's life, if a relationship with Jesus was real and authentic, it had a way of bubbling out. And so there was none of this private thing. I do it on my own. It's personal, they would say, but it's not private. It's very, very individualistic, but it has a corporate part as well. And they leveraged this corporate part because they were lit on fire with the truth of God's word, that Jesus loved people, that he gave his life. And they took one passage very, very seriously. In fact, as they lived this idea that faith is to be lived out publicly, one of the ways they did it is is around their namesake, the idea of baptism. For them, baptism was nothing more than going public with your faith. You made a commitment to Jesus. How are we going to tell the world? We're going to do it through the act of baptism. You'll go public with your faith. We're not going to do it in some back room of a church. We're going to bring all your family and friends and all your neighbors who saw the way you used to act. But now you're with Jesus and we're going to take you under the water. So it was a very dramatic display of what symbolically they believed was already happening. We're going to take you under the water. That's going to indicate that you're dying to yourself. We're going to lay you flat. Then we're going to raise you back up, indicating that you've been raised to life in Christ. And as the water washes over you, comes off of you, that's going to indicate to your friends and family that you've been made clean through, through the work of Jesus, not by yourself, and your life's going to be different now. And so baptisms became a rallying cry all the way through the movement that a change had happened. And it wasn't enough to have a private change. We're going to tell it to the world. And they just pull this out of Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Perhaps... Not as well known as John 3.16, but for followers of Jesus who are already in, perhaps the most important verse in the Bible. It's Jesus giving us his final command, he says, to his people. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Baptists took this seriously. They thought they had a call right there. 
So they really believe that faith should be lived out, private faith should be lived out publicly. It would begin with an act of baptism where an adult who understood what they were doing or a young kid who was old enough to speak it would be in front of a group of people. The pastor would look at them and say, are you committing your life to Jesus? Are you prepared to turn away from everything else and give your life totally to him? And they would say yes, that public declaration. And then the Baptist pastor would typically say, because of your profession of faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I baptize you. And they would use the thing here in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then they'd go on to the next one. And that person often would get up and leave very changed. And often they had a religious background, but it was just that. It was a background. The faith of their parents had not become their faith personally. Or it had become their faith personally, but then it would kind of peter out. But when they went public, it had a certain stickability to it. And this became the Baptist method. Another thing that they did as a way of living out a personal faith publicly is they operated on a strategy called invest-invite. 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 The idea here was is that followers of Jesus had a personal responsibility to invest in other people in a relationship that mattered, not a utilitarian, I only want to get to know you for church, but you matter to me, and because you matter to me, I want a relationship with you. And in that relationship, that follower of Jesus would talk about the most important thing to the follower of Jesus, which was Jesus, to the person they're building a relationship with. So they would invest in the relationship, and then they would invite that person to come to church with them, or to go to a meeting with them to hear the gospel. Because they believed that if that person that they cared about would hear the word of God in a compelling and understanding way, it might literally change their life. I didn't just make this up. They took a passage like Romans chapter 10, verse 9 through 15, very seriously. Let's just look at what Paul wrote to the Romans about salvation. He says these, these words. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord... And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're going to be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and with your mouth you profess your faith and are saved. So there's that private and public again. In the heart, but through the mouth. Personally, but publicly. And then verse 11, as the scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. In other words, if you're with God, you're going to make it. You're going to be fine. Verse 12, for there's no difference, Jew to Gentile. Well, this seems unique. It seems special. Paul would say, no, it's very fair because everybody, Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles have complete access. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But the Baptists didn't stop there. They were working this invest invite strategy. So verse 14, they would say these words become very important. And I've heard this often in a Baptist church preached. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? So how can somebody believe if they, if they don't believe, right? How, how are they going to do that? How can they call on him if they don't believe in him? And then step two, and how can they believe in the one in whom they've not heard? So if they've not heard about it, how can they call on him? And then how can they hear unless somebody tells them, preaches, proclaims it to them? And how can anyone preach unless somebody's sent to preach? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So the Baptist would say, the ugliest part about your body, your stinking feet, if you proclaim Jesus, it becomes beautiful. It's, just, it's beautiful. 
Now, in, 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 in the ancient days, feet were really a mess. You know, they didn't have Nike shoes. They didn't have, you know, nice, nice, you know, footing. And so there's, and there's animals roaming the streets. So that gets messy real quick. And so feet were a mess. But even ugly feet were beautiful if they brought good news to the hearer. But how are they going to hear if they don't believe? And how are they going to believe if they don't have a chance to hear about it? And how are they going to hear about it unless somebody tells them? And how's somebody going to tell them unless they sent? And so then the pastors would often stand in front of the group. And they would say, here's the deal. We're going to set up a time to tell them about it. You have to help pay for that. You have to help create that environment. We have to, you know, set up chairs and sweep the place out and make sure there's stuff for kids. And then you got to bring them in. And if you bring them in, these people you care about, we'll tell them the truth. And then maybe what Paul's talking about here can be lived out. They could actually hear it, understand it, and respond to it. Because how are they going to have a chance to respond if they don't hear it? And how are they going to hear it unless somebody tells it to them. And how's, how's somebody going to tell them that unless somebody is sent and commissioned to make it happen? It was the power of the invitation. And just so it's not lost on you, I want to have you turn your eyes to the screen for the next minute and a half and just one more time work through a series of events that changed the world. Go ahead and take a look at this video. tell you, I can't talk about this stuff without tearing up because I have a story and you have a story. And behind your faith journey, there is a person or persons who believed it was important enough. They loved you enough to tell you the truth about God, about yourself, about, about what Jesus has done in this world. And for me, it happened in a Sunday school class in inner city, Chicago. There was a lady who just carved out time and talked to these young kids. I was five years old about Jesus. And for the first time in my life, I heard Jesus loves me. And I learned a song about that. And that information began to churn in my life to where I was almost six years old. And at five years old, not fully understanding it. But I understood enough that if Jesus is the kind of Jesus they're talking about, I want that guy in my life. And I get really, really stoked about this. Right now, there are, and, and, and in second service as well, there'll be over 200 kids and middle schoolers right here in this building who are very busy people who don't have time, who've had to carve out time, believe it's worth them carving out time to sit in a room with these kids 
And from the youngest baby, just hold them and create a loving environment to toddlers where they can begin to learn a few basic songs about Jesus to elementary kids who have very black and white understanding and they know the difference between a God who loves you and somebody who doesn't treat you well. All the way up to our middle schoolers who are old enough to begin thinking deeply about things like eternity. There are people investing in these kids, but here's what we don't know, and this is what jazzes me. We don't know what God's going to do with one of those lives. I mean, any one of them or all of them, they may be, and this is not exaggeration or just speaking to make a point. They may be the next Billy Graham, who God uses the beginnings that happen in a place like this to dramatically change their lives. But let's not just make it about Billy Graham because it's easy to dismiss that greatness and not think it relates to us. Who knows but what's sitting in this room right now, God isn't stirring somebody's heart to do profound ministry, Jesus-oriented, life-changing, people-changing ministry right in the community in which you live. Now, I believe the apostle, the apostle Paul was right on it and he said, it's very important that people understand, but how will they understand unless somebody tells it to them? So the Baptist would rally around this idea. You bring the people you know here and we'll tell them. You help us make a compelling environment where people can hear and we promise you we will not waste their time. We'll talk about the greatest message this world has ever heard. Well, I'm not Baptist. That jazzes me. That's why just over 11 years ago, we started this church. We had a stupid, foolish idea. What if the eight of us in this room could begin to give ourselves to creating a place where we could invite our friends and neighbors to hear about Jesus in a way that they could understand it? What if we were successful at taking incredibly complicated theology, but talking about it in ways that people could understand right down here? What if we could take people who they have given up on themselves, others have given up on them, and we could, through the power of God's word, help them understand that God hasn't given up on them and that grace reaches all the way down. Would God bless that? Would people rally and help us create a place like this? I gotta tell you, that thing that drove John Smith to Amsterdam that helped John Bunyan write his work, that was affecting Oswald Sanders right here in Cincinnati and literally around the world, that motivated Billy Graham, still works. God's word is powerful. The Bible describes it this way. It's sharp, like a two-edged sword. It cuts to the quick of a person's life, all the way down deep to the most alive parts, bringing truth to bear. And the truth is not all that complicated. You're a sinner. I'm sorry. You're broken. You can't fix yourself. Only God can fix what's broken with you. And God has done that through the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who came and lived while you were imperfect. He lived a perfect life. And he gave his life on a cross and God raised him from from the dead to prove to us that God would accept us because of the work of Jesus. And if you'll trust him, It can change your life. I'm just telling you, friends, when we're food for worms, when we are pushing up daisies, that message will be alive and well every single day that the sun comes up. Every single morning that there is an earth, 
Every single morning that there's a human being, even one of them breathing, that message will be alive. Nothing will stop it. This is our father's world. And his agenda moves forward. And it's a pretty clear and simple one. That God through Jesus in your life makes a difference. And there's no greater thing to give your life to. Together, through partnership, we can do something profound. That was the message of the Baptists. And we have a lot to learn from them. A lot that we can learn from them. So, why don't you do this? Why don't you grab out your connect card? I'd love to lead you in just as I am and have an altar call, but my singing would drive you out the doors. So let's do what I'm pretty good at. Let's pull out our connect cards and let's take a few steps together as a congregation. I've been talking all around it, but perhaps there's somebody here who has not yet put their faith and trust in Jesus. I want to tell you, it's the most important decision you'll ever make. What will you do with Jesus? My hope would be that you would accept his free offer of a relationship with you. That you would lay down any pride or excuse that says, no, you're okay. And you would embrace what he says about you. No, actually you're not. That's all right, I love you anyway. And that you would trust Jesus as the one to bridge the gap between you and your heavenly father that loves you. Around here, we just use a simple tool called that connect card. And we ask you to take that pen that was on your seat and check next step A right there. And it says this, that today I'm making Jesus my savior and Lord. Today, I'm gonna make that decision. It's a private decision. It's right in the privacy of your seat. Nobody looking at you. You can check the box. And know that God will wash away your sins, step into your life, and begin to be the one who motivates, moves, restores, heals, gives purpose in your life. A true relationship. A friend who sticks closer than a brother. In a moment, I'm going to use my words and pray. You can use mine. You can come up with your own. It's not the prayer or the card. It's the movement of the heart. And you can say to God, God... I want to follow you with my life. The biblical word for that is, I want you to be the Lord. You're in charge. I'm the follower. I want you to be my savior, the one who forgives my sins. Or maybe today you need to do what the Baptists are famous for. Maybe you need to get baptized. So next step B says this, today I'm choosing to be baptized. If you check that, a member of our team will get you signed up. We have a baptism coming up in just a couple weeks. And if you are an adult who haven't been baptized and you'd like to do that, You go ahead and check this box and that begins the series of events that ends in you being baptized if it works out for you. But I know that for a lot of people that raises a lot of questions. So next step C says this. Hey, I'd like to have a conversation with the 4C leader about being baptized because, you know, that's a little different than the way I was raised. That's fine. We, We got a lot of room for that here. So what you do is you just check C and one of our leaders will sit down with you. We're not gonna push you to do anything. We're gonna explain to you as best we understand the scriptures, talk about your heritage and see if baptism isn't right for you. All right. How about next step D? I'm just going straight for the Baptist, you know, invest and invite here. Who would say, I will invite somebody I care about to come to church with me? So here, here's a guarantee you get around here. I can't answer for every other church, but you bring people here, they will get Bible. In every environment, they will get Bible. 
And every single Sunday in this environment, we're gonna give them a chance, sometimes in big ways, sometimes in smaller ways, more time and less time, we're gonna give them a chance to make a decision about Jesus. So your investment in a friend and inviting them to hear might literally change their eternity. We're ramping up for Christmas. It's a great time. Our biggest service of the year, Christmas Eve Eve, which happens on Christmas Eve Eve, December 23rd, right here, you can invite their friends and they're gonna get some Christmas stuff and then they're gonna get the gospel of Jesus. Why don't you check the box and join with me and start praying about it. All right, or how about here? You know, it takes a lot of people, a partnership to pull this church off. So next step E says, I'm interested in participating in 4C's core rally on Saturday, December 12th at 9 a.m. Then it says, send me the link to sign up, all right? So if you check this box, we'll send you the link to sign up. A core rally is all the folks who call this church home. Our volunteers and leaders show up in this room on a Saturday. We feed them breakfast and we talk about the mission and vision of this place. If you wanna know the heartbeat behind what you're experiencing, whether this is your church home or not, you can come. There's open question and answers in that format. I cast the vision for where we're going next. I wanna invite everybody in this room to come because we believe we need you. And if we're gonna do all that God has called us to do, we need you. And this environment helps you understand where God's taking us. Let's pray about these things right now. Father, I wanna pause and just say thank you. God, I wanna thank you for Carol Webb who invested her time and energy in that little basement church room in Chicago that I was privileged to sit in. And at five years old, I had no idea the profundity of the truth she was speaking. But you gripped my heart. God, I just gotta say thank you. Thank you for her, for her investment. And Lord, I wanna say thank you for every single man and woman in this church, high schooler, middle schooler, who is investing in this place. They serve, they give, they pray, they invite. They're friendly, they're open, God, and they make what you're doing here happen. We can't do it without them, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, God. Our prayer is that we would do this and it would please you. But we pray, God, that as we do it, you would take the truth of your word and you would change lives. God, we're bold enough to ask for the next Billy Graham. God, if you'll send them to us, we'll invest in them. We will not falter. We will be faithful to invest and to love and to serve and tell the truth to the people you bring us. God, I pray along with those that are declaring right now, Jesus, wash away my sins. Be the Lord of my life, I'll follow you. And Father, as we ramp up for this Christmas season, where the whole world will be talking all about you, but few of them will know you, we pray, God, you would use this church and our work here to draw men and women, boys and girls to yourself. Use us, Lord. We pray it in your name. Amen.